Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the show. Today's episode is with Nick Groke. Nick Groke, a friend of the show, a friend in real life, a good dude, uh, a pal of mine from the Denver days. Nick is the Rockies beat writer for The Athletic and uh, quite a night for Rockies fans, Rocktober. Witnessed the longest playoff game in the history of Wrigley Field and the Rockies prevail in 13 innings. On a game-winning hit by a third-string catcher. Pretty cool. They played three games in three cities in three days. Going from Denver to L.A. to Chicago. Everybody on the CBS staff picked the Cubs, including myself. And the Rockies won in extra innings. Very exciting. Kyle Freeland, the hometown kid. How about that? Denver born and raised. Six and two-thirds shutout innings. He did not end up being a winning pitcher because stuff happened afterwards in a crazy, crazy game. But uh great story for Freeland and the Rockies. And uh, it was fun to talk to Nick. About half of the episode is baseball, and the other half is journalism. Nick worked for the Denver Post for more than 20 years before going over to The Athletic, and the Denver Post is a newspaper. (laughs) And the newspaper industry uh, has some issues, and as Nick points out, a lot of them don't necessarily have anything to do with the people who run the newspaper on the day-to-day, but rather with the corporate owners uh, who make bad decisions sometimes, including with The Post. And so this is a really entertaining uh well, and I would say entertaining, but also enlightening conversation. If you're one of those, ah, newspapers, ah, who needs them, whatever. I think this will enlighten you a little bit as to the hard work and great work that goes into every newspaper. And that uh, sometimes the things that go wrong are beyond the control of your standard uh, city hall reporter or editors or baseball writer or whatever. Uh, so this is uh, good stuff here with Nick. He's a really smart guy and very passionate about journalism as well as about the Rockies and about baseball. So, uh, and as you can imagine, I, I'm passionate about those things too. So it made for a really good chat. So I hope you enjoy. Uh, also, let us discuss the first of this week's sponsor, friends. That is Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter, look, you have to think about smart versus not smart. You want to talk about maybe you're going to the dentist. That would be smart if you're getting a root canal. Not smart is if you decide that your cat is going to tie a drill to its tail and then try to give you a root canal. That would be not smart. You have to figure out the difference between smart and not smart. You know what is smart, though? Segway. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's a powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with more than 1,000 reviews. Right now, listeners of the Jonah Carey Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive address. Are you ready for it? I think you're ready for it. ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R.com slash Jonah. ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. This episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter, and we thank ZipRecruiter for doing so. So programming notes. Hey, so it's the postseason. Remember all that stuff during the regular season about how I'm going to write mm, sometimes, but then I'm going to be doing a lot of CBS HQ, uh, which is great, by the way, cbssports.com HQ, and also on the CBS Sports app where you can catch me doing video. But I will be writing pretty close to every day in October. Yes, that's right. All of the whatever it is I do <laughs> coming to you uh, pretty much on a daily basis throughout the postseason. I have pieces up, I don't know, two or three or four pieces in the last few days. Uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, there should be a piece up 
going over that great Rockies and Cubs game, which was a lot of fun. Uh, so you can catch that. I had made uh, predictions about the tiebreaker games, which turned out to be pretty good. So you can catch that one. I wrote a piece recently capping my fantasy league, uh, or at least going into the last day of the season in my fantasy league, which is the League of Leagues, baseball, basketball, and football, all in one league. And I was able to prevail by the slimmest of margins over CBS Sports colleague Will Brinson. So that was fun. Uh, finishing in last place, by the way, WWE wrestler The Miz, who is in our pool. That is a whole other story, which I'm going to have to tell some other time in longer form. I gotta get the Miz on the podcast. He came into the the uh, league, by the way, this year, recruited by uh, Brian Gewertz, who's another owner in the league and was the former head writer for WWE Raw, and his partners with Cousin Sal from the Jimmy Kimmel Show. They're both great dudes. And Brian said, "Hey, we should have uh, the Miz be in our pool." And I said, "The Miz, like the wrestler, the Miz. He knows fantasy sports. Sure, he does." Well, I finished first with 121 and a half points in baseball, narrowly edging out Will Brinson, as I said. Um, Mr. Miz had 18 points, so I beat the Miz. Or sorry, 18.5. So I beat the Miz by 103 points, but the good news is that the point spread was 103.5. So congratulations to the Miz for beating the spread. That was uh, very impressive. And, uh, you know, hopefully he can do a little bit better in other sports. We'll see what happens, I guess. Uh, you know what? Let's jump to another podcast, another podcast, another sponsor, because I feel bad uh, dumping on The Miz uh, because I don't really know him. And uh, his wife is from Montreal, so how bad can he be? Let's discuss SeatGeek. Hey, you know what? SeatGeek is fantastic. They always have been. They always will be a longtime sponsor of the Jonah Carey podcast. They are great. It's the best place to buy or sell tickets to any event that you could possibly imagine, whether it is a game, whether it is a concert. I have used SeatGeek for concerts and baseball and hockey and a whole bunch of other things. And they have never done me wrong. They've always been great. This color-coded map will tell you, you know what, this is the best place to sit in the ballpark. It's going to give you the best bang for your buck down the third baseline, behind home plate, in the bleachers, what have you. It's great. And great for concerts, great for comedy. You can even go to the theater with SeatGeek, all that good stuff. I have a SeatGeek app on my phone. Like I said, I use it very, very frequently. And they are fantastic and even better. Listeners of the Joe and Carrie podcast can get 20 bucks off of their first SeatGeek purchase you just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah today. J-O-N-A-H. That's my name. Enter the promo code Jonah and get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. And I will tell you, in real life, IRL, people have sent me tweets and texts and emails and whatever saying, you know what, I heard all this SeatGeek stuff. You've been advertising SeatGeek on your podcast. And here, with when you were with Nerdist, with Grantland, SeatGeek has been sponsoring your podcast since the dawn of time. I got sick of hearing your stupid voice, and I actually tried SeatGeek, and I got $20 off of my first purchase, and I went and saw a ball game. This happens in real life. They're a real company. They do really cool stuff. You should totally do this. If you're listening to this, and this is a very long intro, you know what? The best way to get me shut up is to just download the damn SeatGeek app and then do it. Get 20 bucks off. Go enjoy. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Thank you, Nick Grove, for coming on the podcast. I am recording this intro. The podcast just ended. I'm recording this intro. It is now 5.55 a.m. So I stayed up all night writing and podcasting. The sun is now coming up. So, yeah, go enjoy this podcast. Go read me at cbssports.com. Do me a favor and support my insanity so I don't feel totally bonkers for staying up all night. And thank you all for the support. Yeah.
So let's see. I have on my clock here 4.28 a.m. So that means that I'm talking to Nick Groke at 3.28 a.m. in Wrigley Field. And to review, Nick Groke, Rockies beat writer for The Athletic, friend of the show, Renaissance man, great dude, covered the Rockies game in Denver on Sunday, flew to L.A. I believe there were like five flights that got canceled and eventually made it to L.A., Went to LA, Rockies lose, now they gotta go to Wrigley Field, and by then it's okay, well they're going from Denver to LA to Wrigley Field, they're the underdog, they're not gonna win. No, no, they won. So now they're gonna go to the next round. Nick Groke, how are you feeling right now? Uh, I am, well, first of all, I'm stickier than a, than a, than a, than a five-year-old after a cotton candy binge, um, with, which she covered in champagne, but, um, oh, right. Of course you are. That's right. But I'm going to make it. It's strange. I mean, I'm, I'm playing this by ear, just like the Rockies are. I yes. had no idea. I had no idea where I was going to be today. And I had no, I had no idea where I was going to be tomorrow. I guess I'm going to be on a train. I don't, I hope I make it. I don't know. I'll trip there somehow. Amazing. But, uh, yeah, Milwaukee it's not far is to Chicago to Milwaukee. I guess you could, you could almost Uber at that. It's probably about a hundred bucks, but it could be done. It could. Have you ever have you ever taken an Uber that long? Like that a really kinda, long Uber. That's kind of demanding. I think it is demanding. I want now. I want to do it for intellectual purposes. But what if they surge price you? Then it's like six thousand dollars or something like that. <laughs> I talked. I talked to somebody. I talked to a Lyft driver once who went L.A. to San Francisco, which seems like oh, really demanding far. if you're a driver. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. They seem to like it. I don't know. Well, Milwaukee, I, Milwaukee's ninety miles. I mean, that's not as bad. That's not that bad. No. All right. Well, anyway, so let, we're going to get into all that stuff. One thing I want to ask you right off the top, since you mentioned that your uh, your words sticky after all this, I have never I've I've covered games uh, in person from a distance, whatever, and I've covered playoff games, but I never bothered to go into the locker room when the champagne celebration happened, just because I'm on a deadline, whatever. What most people listening to this podcast have never been in a locker room. When a team is celebrating, what's that like? The spring of the champagne is this rote at this point because you celebrate after this with oh the first round and the tiebreaker and da 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 da, or is it like wow, like really cool, really fun? They're super into this thing and the celebration is genuine and crazy and and bubbly and all that. This is actually like a, a relevant question for the Rockies yes. in the last couple in the last couple of days because they clinched a postseason berth on. What was it? Friday, Saturday? Correct. I've already forgotten. Yeah. They were still going, but they didn't know what postseason they were clinching. They yeah. didn't know if they were going to win the division, if they were just going to go to the wild card. So they had, this is the, I've never seen this before with any team. They had like kind of a fake party. <laughs> I, I feel like, I feel like they did it for, so they brought, it was at Coors Field. Yeah. They brought, they broadcast it on the big screen. Okay. Um, like in the, I, I didn't see it on the big screen. I was in the clubhouse, yeah. but, uh, I, sw I swear they did it sort of like to sell t-shirts. Like, I feel like they were required to just have a party, hmm. even though they, they kind of, it kind of seemed like they didn't really want one. I, and Bud Black, their manager was sort of, to be honest, he was kind of annoyed by the whole thing. <laughs> but so they're spraying, they're spraying champagne around the locker room, but nobody's actually drinking it. They had a game the next day. Right. Um, a game that mattered. A game that mattered. Like they were still trying to win the debut yeah. game. So they, it was like a fake party. And then, so they did it for like 20 minutes and then all of a sudden the lights came on and then everybody <laughs> just left. It was like <laughs> the worst party ever. Um, but tonight in Wrigley, they actually, they actually 
clinch something. They won the wild card. They they got into a a series Mm -hmm. and they don't have to play tomorrow. So tonight was more like, tonight was like a legit party. Like they were actually drinking and actually partying. And this one, they were chanting a bunch of stuff that I had, I had no idea what they were saying. You should know I, these things. You've been with them all season long. They're, they're nine equals eight or whatever weirdo cub stuff, except in the Rockies clubhouse now. I don't know. I, I asked around and they, and some people demurred. Some players demurred. They didn't really want to say exactly what it was. It uh, might have been dirty. I have no idea. I'm not fair. saying that it was, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, they, the, 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 the Cubs visiting clubhouse is tiny. It's totally yes. cramped. And, and, and by the, the way, the Cubs home clubhouse is majestic because they redid like both clubhouses were crap. And then they redid the Cubs one. And now the Cubs one went from being the oldest and weirdest to like, you've never seen anything that nice. It's incredible. And the Brewers just had a party like, like <laughs> la- yesterday. Yeah. And they, and they amazingly, whoever runs, the clubbies at Wrigley are amazing because oh, the clubhouse the, the clubhouse today was like brand new. Mm. Nobody knew, you couldn't tell. I certainly got a contact high from champagne and fumes <laughs> tonight. Like so they whatever they did last night after the Brewers, they're I mean they're gonna have to do it again tonight. But uh it was a mess. I mean it was a sea of alcohol just on the floor everywhere. But uh it was I don't know, it was fun. It was cool. I just realized, I guess this is the first time in Major League history that two visiting teams, it's gotta be the two visiting teams in two visiting days clinch something and or celebrate it in the opposing clubhouse. There's no way that's ever happened before. Like, I, it can't be. I could, I was, I, I, I didn't bother looking it up. I was trying to think of it and I couldn't think. Uh, I mean, it's how, how, no, I, it, it Cause the tiebreaker and all this other it? stuff. Yeah. How rare is it that there are, first of all, two, I mean, there's never been two tiebreakers. Yeah, you can have one team win a wild card on like, or one team clinch a playoff berth on like last Thursday, and then you go the next Friday, and then that team wins the division or something. Like, let's say the Cubs are not involved; they're like also Rans, and that's an area. The Dodgers are playing them, and they win something, and then the Brewers win something the next day. I guess that's possible. You know what? You know what I was thinking too, Jonah. This might be off topic, but you know the thing I don't like about sports sometimes is that like we, <laughs> when you when you have too much time to think about it, yes, <laughs> uh, you can you you like uh, it like everything is the best or the biggest ever, and then the next day it's just like another thing. So like if how could you have the best biggest thing on a Monday when there's a best biggest thing on Tuesday? What's 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 more fun is when everything happens so fast you don't even get a chance to like. Soak it in or think about it. Two tiebreakers, two tiebreaking games. Yes. Two game 163s on the same day. That's not right. And then, and then a wild card the very next day. That's fun because you just, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, you know, you know, surfboard on a moonbeam. You kind of just have to go with it. <laughs> and, uh, there's no, there's no real time to like, uh, there's no real time to consider it in some big context. It's just, it's just cool in the moment. Well, maybe my three, I guess my three favorite gamers that I ever wrote, one was multi-gamer was the game 162 a few years ago that when the Rays won and the Red Sox got knocked out. And that was just like, right, 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 as a, as a media person. And then another one was the David Freeze game because that was just had so many momentum shifts. You're just writing on the fly. And then number one for me was the, 
Cubs Cleveland game seven in 2016, where you're just like, Oh, that, okay. You just, you don't have time to ponder it. I will add, by the way, that nothing has ever been off topic in the history of the Jonah Terry podcast. Witness the fact that two weeks ago, the guest Dave Damashek and I talked for 20 minutes about what the best fruit is. So that definitely tells you that there is nothing off topic. We could get into hair product for 20 minutes. I'd have no problem with this. Your, but we're doing this as video and both your hair and my hair looks ridiculous because it's literally close. It's closer to tomorrow morning than it is to last night at this point. How, how is there cheap champagne that, that my, this is, champagne is like a great hair product. <laughs> I have like really great hair right now. For people who can't see this, grow. Of course you can't see this. How could you see this? It's impossible that you would be able to see it. Grok looks like something about Mary, but in a good way, I guess. Yeah, and not, yeah, and not gross, obviously. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Rockies. So my gamer, and I've been, um, and I'll hype this guy's work throughout the postseason. I, um, I'm going to be working with a guy named Nick Pollock who runs a site called PitcherList.com. And Nick is really good at like pitching breakdowns and gifts and just like really understanding the, the nuances of it. He was a college pitcher. He's a young guy. He gets the analytics, but he really understands like mechanics and pitch sequencing and all this stuff. So you'll see my, I'm, I'm, I might write 30 gamers in a row this month. Uh, and Nick will collaborate on a bunch of them. So anyway, so I said, we, I try to come up with a theme a couple innings into a game and hope that it holds. And although the result of the game changed, to me, Kyle Freeland was the story of this game. And I thought it was interesting because Kyle Freeland, for people who might not know, he threw the fifth most innings in the National League this year, but it was only his second major league season. Topped his previous career high in innings at any professional level or levels by 40. And he was pitching on three days rest. Now, Herman Marquez is kind of the co-ace of the staff. He had just pitched on Monday. And John Gray and some other guys who might normally be good candidates were either off turn or just weren't that as good this year. And so the decision was made to start Freeland. Did it strike you as controversial at the time? Were there other people in the clubhouse second-guessing Buddy Black, or was it just like, oh, yeah, this is obviously the guy, and if he has to pitch four or five innings, fine, because he's the best guy we got? It was totally it was totally obvious, and they figured this out, like, several days ago. Okay. The the whole, um like, backtracking, there was a there was a, well, a really, inter- to me, really fascinating, and I haven't totally gotten to the bottom of it yet, uh, like, late-night managerial chess match thing going on between Dave Roberts, Dave Martinez, uh, Bud Black. There, there was like a, like a multi-team, <laughs> uh, like jumble of, of who, like who they were going to start in what games. Yeah. Like Dave Roberts was under the impression that Max Scherzer was going to throw the final game of the season for the Nationals Sunday at Coors Field. Which, by like, as soon as he got his 300th strikeout, there was kind of no way that was going to happen. There, he wanted, he said he wanted to, but I didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you could guess that, like, he he probably wouldn't because why? Why bother? Scherzer at least said he wanted to. Yeah. I don't know, but but it, imagine but, he gets hurt and then he needs TJ. My God, Dave Martinez wouldn't just be fired; he would have been exiled to Abu Dhabi. It would have been. But there's no. But there's also no reason for for Dave Martinez to lie about that. So like, why would you? Why there's they're out of it. There's no. They're not doing anything. So why are you? There's no competitive advantage to them like trying to hint that Scherzer was going to pitch that game. Uh, but he did. They he did and yeah, it, and it, it turned out that they. They didn't pitch him. And then, it, I don't know, long story short, like it required, it required Dave Roberts with the Dodgers to flip his, his idea. So he was going to pick, he was going to pitch, he ended up pitching <coughs> Walker, Walker Bueller when it mattered in the, in the, in game 163. And he pitched great. Which would like worked out for them, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Um, 
Bud Black had figured out his whole thing like several days before. Okay. Like they he, they wanted Herman Marquez in game 163 on regular rest. Yeah. Um, he's been in the second half. He's been Kyle Freeland's equal. He's awesome. He's awesome. Freeland and, last and, twelve starts two point one four ERA by the way going into this game. Two point one four, and he throws half his games at Coors Field. Which we're gonna get into all this stuff anyway. Well, yeah, no. So that's but that's part of the calculation. So Kyle, they wanted Kyle Freeland in the in the wild card game on short rest. They weren't worried about his short rest, um, but it'll set him up then now. I mean, he's been their best pitcher. Every every player mm-hmm. on the team wanted Kyle Freeland in the do or die game, mm-hmm. um, and and it sets him up then to pitch at Coors Field in the NLDS against the Brewers. So yes. it, it, they 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 planned this all the way out. It, it, it did not just fall to them. Uh, they wanted this specifically. They're gonna they're they're in a pickle on Thursday. They're gonna have to pitch Antonio Sensatella probably against the Brewers, which is not ideal. But but they can almost do that as a bullpen day if they figure that their other guys can go six or seven. Then you could see, I don't know, Oberg in the fourth inning or something like that. And maybe that would work. Yeah, well, yeah, and it'll change it'll change their calculation how they they determine their their series roster. But yeah, I mean they they have they have guys to to mess around with. They can they can juggle John Gray and Tyler Anderson and whatnot. But um, but yeah, no, Kyle Freeland was the obvious choice, and nobody was concerned about him pitching on short rest, even though he's never done it. He he, like Kyle Freeland ended up in the bullpen late last year because he burned out. He, he was going 110% <coughs> yeah. from spring training to the end of he the year. He was a rookie. He, he didn't know. He, 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 yeah, he'd never pitched in September before in his life. Yeah. So he, he got to September and he kind of freaked out. Um, not freaked out, but he burned out. Yeah. This year he approached him much better and they helped him along and they, they paced him through the season. So it, the p- pitching on short rest was no big deal. And he was throwing harder than he has. He was throwing about two miles an hour harder tonight than he has all season. Crazy. Uh, he, he, I mean, it was an adrenaline thing, but I asked him after the game, he said, I wasn't, he, he certainly wasn't trying to throw harder. It just kind of came with the moment and he was fine. He, 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 he felt fine. He got through almost seven innings. Um, and he was great. He was, he, I mean, he was great. He, it's, that, that's another thing about sports, Jonah. It's like kind of difficult. How much stuff happened after he left the game, but is, like, <laughs> he is, he is probably the most, I mean, he is, I mean, you had the, you know, there, you know, we talk about this sometimes in baseball. The second inning not, is not necessarily less important than the ninth inning. Um, and he was their most important player, but he's going to get buried in everybody's game stories because Tony Walters, the third catcher, the backup catcher, Hit a game-winning hit in the thirteenth inning. So yeah, but yes, no. Kyle Freeland won them the game, really. Um, not he's not buried in my game story. It's all, pretty much all Freeland. Uh, I, I'll make a couple of quick points, but I want to bounce back to Freeland. Uh, I was happy to see Terrence Gore in this game. I, I have no dog in this race. So I was just like watching for fun stuff, and I'd written in mid-September that a team needs to go all the way with this. They need to. Load all year long, not just in September when rosters expand, but you gotta have a designated pinch runner. These guys are good, could swing a whole season. We're waiting for Terrence Gore. Something big is gonna happen, and then something big totally happened, and he stole the base, and then he scored the game tying run. But then they kept him in the game. And Terrence Gore is the only player in Major League history not employed by former Crazy A's owner Charlie Finley, who has more stolen bases in his career than plate appearances, you see. So when he comes to the plate, 
it looks really bad. I didn't even get to him in my column because I could have just gone down the rabbit hole. But he gets to three and two in the 13th inning, and he's the leadoff guy. And if he draws a walk, it's a double. Nobody's I don't care if you're Benito Santiago on steroids or just Benito Santiago. In his prime, he would have thrown out Terrence. Nobody's throwing out Terrence Gore. It's impossible. Nobody's doing it. And he struck out on a pitch in the dirt, which is insane to me. And I'm going to mention this because it didn't get in my column. So I'm going to put it in the podcast. I'm going to try to get it right. Nick Pollock pointed out that, uh, again, a gore foiled by a swing state. Yeah, hey, okay. uh, it was, it was very well done. I enjoyed it very much. And he, he wanted a recount there. So, <laughs> so Scott Oberg is pitching yes. and he lets one loose and it gets by Tony Walters, the catcher. Yes. It tags the umpire, Guccione. And, like right and in Gore the acts like it hit him, but didn't go and to first he, base. Sell it more. You didn't sell it well enough. He was so desperate to get the first base without <laughs> having to get a hit. He just, he just like nobody told him that. Nobody like indicated that he might have gotten hit by. He just la- he just left for first base. <laughs> He's just like, I'm just gonna go over there for a while. Like as Guccione's like rolling around in the dirt in pain. He's like, I'm just gonna go to first base. And they were like, Wait, 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 wait. come back, come back. <laughs> like you, did you think that hit you in the sleeve? Because it, it didn't do it didn't do anything to you. It was phenomenal. Uh, I want to ask you about the Freeland thing. I, you know, I lived in Denver for six years. You're a lifelong Denver guy. And a long-time Rockies beat writer and Denver Post guy and athletic guy and all this stuff. True Blue Denver, there's something – maybe this is every region, but I don't think it's every region. I don't think if you're from Los Angeles and you play for the Dodgers, people are like, hometown kid. Like when Sean Green, who's from Tustin, was good with the Dodgers, they're like, oh, my God, it's our guy. They're like, yeah, Sean Green, he's good. you know. But Kyle Freeland is a Denver kid. He went to high school in Denver, and Denver, like St. Louis and some other cities, is one of those cities like, where'd you go to high school? That means everything. And – the, one of my favorite Twitter things ever is uh, our mutual friend Jenny Kavnar, who works for uh, a local broadcast. She posted a tweet, and it was Kyle Freeland wearing a Rockies onesie as a baby because the Rockies came into existence the year that he was born, in 1993. And now he's pitching for their playoff lives – who knows, maybe he could be pitching for the World Series and he's a hometown kid. How big a deal is it that Kyle Freeland is a hometown kid in Denver? Because again, if he's from New York or LA or whatever, I don't think we're talking about it. Well, well, a couple of things. So like, I think he was, I think the Rockies very first game, which was at New York against the Mets in 93, I think it was like one month after he was born. Yes. It, it was like right, they were like basically right at the same time. Yeah. And he, he said tonight and he, he means it, and I, man, I hope the business of baseball never catches up to him. He said, uh, you know, as a lifelong Rockies fan, I live and die with every single pitch of this team, and he meant that at just as much as a as a fan. That's great. As a as a pitcher on the team, isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, uh, man, I man, I hope he ne- I like, you know, he's gonna get out of arbitration one day, and I hope that. <laughs> oh, he might make 150 million dollars if he pitches like this. He's really good. Yeah, it's yeah. just like he, if if ever there was somebody who was supposed to just be with the Rockies his whole career, yeah, because yeah, Freeland. Yeah. So so the attachment that he has to the Rockies and vice versa, it goes a little bit deeper though. Um, first of all, it's not the greatest baseball city for it's not the greatest high school baseball city. No, you can't you can't play baseball year round. Roy Holiday's like the guy, I guess. Oh, Roy Holiday, somebody I went to high school with. Um, and pe- like people still talk about it because 
it's so it's so r- rare to have like a a very outstanding baseball player come out of Denver or Colorado. But maybe football a little bit, but not baseball. But and then beyond that, a pitcher like yeah. the, no oh god, no, right? Of course. <laughs> and then yeah, and you know, home homegrown. The Rockies don't ha- don't have a long list of successful homegrown pitchers. It's a really short list. Yeah. So the fact that they have one now and he came from Denver, like people are really attached to this. Yeah. They're, they're, they're really drawing on it as, as a sense of like, not, not just a sense of pride, but a sense of relief that it's mm-hmm. actually possible. Um, and then, and then like, and the, whatever is being embraced in this situation is it's reciprocal from him too. Like he, like, it's a relief for him too. It's like my, it, it's, he can almost remove himself and be like, man, my favorite team finally has a homegrown pitcher. Oh wait, well, but it's, it's me. me. It's me. I'm the ace uh, of the staff. It really is something like this that is a, is a pretty big deal to Rockies fans. Well, and I touched on this in the column too, but this is a pitching team now. And as you know, despite the fact that we have park factors and all this stuff, it's still hard to wrap your mind around the fact that this team has really good pitchers when they have like, not Freeland because he was really good, but if you have like a 370 ERA, that's awesome. And if you hit, you know, 290 with 25 home runs, it's not necessarily awesome because of course field. And you look at park adjusted offense this year, the Rockies are tied with the Baltimore Orioles. They suck. They can't hit. They got a couple guys who can hit and they got a whole bunch of guys who can't hit. Ian Desmond is the best fantasy player ever, but man, he had bad offensive numbers once you adjust for park. And the pitchers on the other hand have been great. And this whole idea you can't develop pitchers. Jeff Breidich, before he was the GM of the team, was the head of player development. He was the farm director. And, you know, the, all these guys were either traded for or or drafted or whatever. For the most part in the Breidich era, whether he was the farm director or the GM, Marquez was an acquisition from another team. Gray was developed. Freeland was developed. Uh, you know, even secondary. Like, I think Oberg didn't come over from another team. I think he was a Rockies draftee, right? He was, and I mean, yeah. even I mean, even Herman Marquez, who came up with the Rays, he he got to the Rockies early enough that, like, I I think it's fair for them to to have some ownership of his development. Yeah, he that, wasn't that's good over. with the Rays; he was a throwing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, the, we, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. Mm-hmm. You know, they the Rockies for the longest time chased like a secret formula for pitching at Coors Field. That yes. like was it going to be a, like Aaron Cook's sinker ball guys or and Aaron Cook you know, was probably the most successful pitcher in franchise history, and he has struck like five guys for nine innings, which is bizarre. Right. Well, like the key. I mean, I think you might have figured this out even before the Rockies. It's stupid. It's uh, it's almost stupid to say, but the key is to just have good pitchers. Yeah, I know. Like, there's no secret. You just have good pitchers. Like, why are you not? Why don't you have good pitchers? Like, there are a lot of reasons why they didn't, and they finally have some. Yeah. And they didn't screw them up. They brought them up. They brought them up correctly. They let them be who they are. Herman Marquez is an entirely different pitcher than Kyle Freeland, and they're both successful. The the crazy part of of Kyle Freeland and to, to a very similar degree, Herman Marquez this season. Um, you know, I am, I'm very used to trying to figure out how well a pitcher is doing at Coors Field by looking at more advanced statistics, park yeah, adjusted, yeah. park adjusted numbers. Kyle Freeland's basic, very basic statistics are, are among really the best. In the league. <laughs> yeah. Like he has, like he has a sub three ERA. He has like a two, two something ERA at Coors Field. It's unbelievable. Two hundred two innings pitch. Like he's legit. He's a. He's, I mean, obviously the Cy Young field's stupid this year. He can't beat Degrom or even Scherzer. But man, like in another year, he could be right there. Yeah, which like I, I honestly never 
I, it never dawned on me that we could be talking about just, just comparing a, a Rockies pitcher just on basic things like ERA Crazy. with, with other, with other pitchers who are among the best in the league. Um, the fact that, the fact that you can see a Rockies player on leaderboards, like very basic statistical leaderboards is, is really amazing. <laughs> I know. Um, this is more, it's a general question couched in under specific question. So, um, I talk, I mean, you know, I didn't spend that long in Denver. I wasn't at the park that much, but I would try to talk to Walt Weiss a little bit. I talked to Buddy Black. I think we both know that Buddy Black tends to be a little bit more forthcoming and chatty or whatever. Although Weiss has his moments, as you said, if you can get him one on one, but Black will talk and, um, it sort of got a feel for him. And I was wondering about this idea of a manager who's a pitcher and or was a pitching coach, like a guy who's known as a pitching mind as opposed to a former catcher or as opposed to a position player who becomes a manager, like Brian Price. There are a few guys. Does Bud Black deserve credit for any of this pitching stuff? Should we give it to the pitching coach? Should we just say it was good scouting and player development? Like, how much does a manager with a pitching background have say over a pitching staff when presumably you've hired a pitching coach in good stead who knows what he's doing as well? Uh, no, I think he deserves a lot of credit. Okay. Now he'll, now he'll, he'll deflect <coughs> and he'll say, you know, like, uh, Steve Foster, the, the pitching coach yeah. deserves a lot of credit. And, and he probably does, but there, there have been very specific moments that Bud Black has dragged them or pulled his pitching staff up. Hmm. Um, he was hired, he was hired very specifically to, they, the, Jeff Breidich knew that there was this wave of pitchers coming through Colorado. Yes. Um, and, but they were, you know, when they hired Bud Black, they were kind of on the verge. They didn't know for sure. John, John Gray was almost kind of established at that point, but Kyle Freeland wasn't. Marquez, no. Senzatella, no. They, they needed somebody to guide them up. Now, here's a good story, a good, a good example. Last season, Kyle Freeland pitched on, on July 4th, on Independence Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, uh, he was struggling. Bud Black, you know, a lot of times, um, you'll see a manager or a pitching coach go to the mound and the catcher joins them. Sometimes, sometimes an infielder will come and it, they'll strategize. This game, <laughs> this game, which was like base, I think it was a sellout at Coors Field. Oh, wow. Uh, a fireworks, fireworks game on July 4th. Field, yeah. yeah. They're wearing, they're wearing the, like the red, white, and blue uniforms and stuff. So Bud Black comes out to the mound and Kyle feeling struggling. It, um, Bud Black doesn't do the thing where he covers his, Mouth yeah, yeah, yeah. To like, like he doesn't, if you're going to read his lips, he doesn't care. He chewed out Kyle Freeland on the mound so hard. Really? Like dressed him down. And like Kurzweil kind of got silent. It wasn't, he wasn't screaming or anything, but everybody knew what was happening. It was really awkward. Wow. Um, and then the next game, Kyle Freeland almost threw a no hitter. <laughs> like, I think he pitched eight scoreless innings, um, didn't allow a hit. Like, it was, it was incredible. He, he is both, Bud Black is both more supportive and harder on pitchers by far, in my opinion, than he is on, on position players. Yeah. He, he, um, he definitely connects with them, um, in a way. It connects with them in a way that's more, that's deeper and more personal than with position players. 
And this extends to, to catchers. He takes catching really personally, but black, yeah. um, he's really hard on catchers too. Cause they've had them rely on young catchers too, like Tony Walters. Yeah. Murphy, um, all kinds of guys like Tom that. Murphy. Yeah. Like Tony Walters is a converted infielder. Like he's still learning the position a lot yeah. in a lot of ways. So between just the, like the entire battery, Bud Black is very hands on. Mm-hmm. You don't see him working in, with Nolan Arenado in, in any kind of way. That's similar to how he works with pitchers. That's his, that's his job on the team. Like he, he needs to manage like any other manager would, but one of his prime duties, especially with this team is to, is to pull a, a very young, a very young still pitching staff up into being more, more major leaguey. How do you think the Rockies match up with the Brewers? I mean, do you think they've got a shot or the Brewers ended up with the best record in the league? They didn't have a, very recently, but then they won eight in a row, and now you could sit back and say, okay, Yelich might be MVP, they got Kane, their bullpen is like unimpeachable, it's sick, it's like Yankees level, it's really, really good, starting pitching so-so, but I mean, this was a formula that worked for Kansas City a few years ago, except that in addition to having great defense and a great bullpen, they mash too. So yeah, I, 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 I yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody matches up very well with the Brewers personally. They're really um, good, yeah. And the 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 Rockies, especially because they tend to they tend to allow runs early and score that's late, that's and that's bad. not a good that's not a good formula for like that's not a, it's definitely not a good formula for probably the best bullpen in the National League. Yeah, uh, with the with the Brewers, it's hilarious. There are like no good bullpens. It's, <laughs> Except for one or two, and the Brewers have one. It's yeah. going to carry them a long way. The, Brewers, um, Oakland, and the Yankees. Those are the three teams. I mean, right, I yeah. guess the Red Sox sort of have a good. Yeah, Red Sox bullpen pretty good. Not, not in the National League. Not and National with, League. Like, no, 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 no. With the the Dodgers have two full lineups. Like they are yeah. so incredibly yeah, deep. Yeah. Jock Peterson but, can't get any playing time. He had twenty five home runs. Or there was a there was a game the Dodgers played, and I actually. Like calculate. This is before the rosters expanded, so it must have been in August. And I, I counted it up. They had like forty-five home runs on the bench. <laughs> the the Rockies had like four. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But they don't have a bullpen. I don't. I wouldn't. I, I if I were the Dodgers, I would be worried about like they, the Dodgers. They. I think they know this too. They really needed to win the win that game yeah. one sixty-three against yeah. the so that they could face the Braves, but. Um, yeah, the Brewers are, the Brewers are nuts. I don't know if they're, like, on paper, if they're the most talented team in the NL. I think the Cubs and the Dodgers are probably more talented, but yeah. right now, right now, no way, man. I would, they're the last team I would want to face. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, since it is a million o'clock in the morning, we, we won't go into more Rockies minutia. I want to ask you a little bit of journalism stuff, though. Um, just cause your path is pretty interesting in that, you literally started being uh, in journalism professionally, or at least working for a newspaper professionally, younger than anybody that I know. And I was had a full time job at twenty, and you crushed me. You were younger than that. You uh, broke in with the Denver Post. You spent your entire Denver, uh, your entire adult life with the Denver Post, and you're no longer with the Denver Post. You're with the Athletic, which is a great place to work. We're going to get to the Athletic in a minute, but I'm interested in the insider's view of a newspaper trying to deal with changing times because you, those 20 odd years or so, that's everything. That's the advent of the internet, essentially. That's trying to come to terms with it. That's being late to the party. That's one round of layoffs and two rounds of layoffs and three rounds of layoffs. And, oh, I wish this good person didn't leave, but they're getting paid too much. They have to leave. And you soldier on, you soldier on, you're there. You're doing good work, all kinds of work, whatever they ask. Boxing, sure. Baseball, sure. Hockey, no problem. Anything that they want. And, it just becomes 
this place that you really, really want to honor, but I guess it's got to be frustrating. How do you navigate that? And how did you end up staying as long as you did, uh, given all the stuff that happened at that paper, not only in the day to day, but in terms of at the ownership level and you had non-journalism people owning the company, that had to be a tough thing to deal with on the day to day, I would think. Yeah, and I could talk about this for like really actually days. Uh, my, <laughs> we'll do a my, few uh, minutes. Yeah, my my um, but yeah, no, I won't. But um, mm-hmm. like my my feelings on the matter are still are still very mixed, and I'm very like it's it's really really strange because yeah. I I grew up at a newspaper. You were a child when you started. Let's not mince uh, words. I mean, yeah, I was. I think I started. I think I was 17 when I started. 17. I was answering. I was answering phones. Yeah. And, and then I just sort of stayed around. But so. Like in a, and I don't, I, I don't mean this in any sentimental way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like, it's a, just a, a fact for me. Like I, those, the people that I worked with and a lot of them are still there. Um, I mean, they really were my family yes. in a lot, in a lot of ways. And, um, and I learned, I, like I learned, I learned life from, from these people. Um, so like I, t- I take a lot of the things that happened there very personally, um, and like a, in a really, in a, like a really gut way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I still have, I still like, I definitely miss working for a newspaper, but I also, I'm, I also am glad that I, I'm not there at the same time. It's very mixed. It's like, it's a hard, it's hard to sort of put into words just because it's so, um, it, it's like so, so to my core. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the, the thing about the thing about the Denver Post, and I think this is the same for a lot of newspapers, because I can see, like, I can see how uh, I can kind of see the mechanisms work for for some places. I can, like I can go to the LA Times website or Washington, whatever, and I can see how, like, having never having having never stepped inside their newsrooms, I I can kind of basically tell how it works. Yeah. Um, the most, the most frustrating part is, and this was certainly true for the Denver Post, and I think it's true in a, in most newspapers, the people who are in the newsroom, editorial employees, and I mean reporters, yep. editors, photographers, um, they kick ass and they don't, like newspapers get a lot of grief a lot of times, but the, we knew what to do at the Denver Post like 10 or 15 years ago. The, it's not that the, the internet didn't sneak up on anybody. Yeah, yeah. Like, we like the, the like there were people in the Denver Post newsroom who could they would have built they, they would have you could have given them two weeks and they would have built an awesome website hmm. in like 2002 or three like like they knew we everybody knew what to do and how to handle it and how to deliver things to to readers but the the business side of the industry was they're just like at times so moronic yeah like and 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 they don't, and they're so slow and so the, the, you know, like at an executive level, they're so slow and so stubborn about how to, how to advance themselves. They didn't allow the people who knew how to handle news best to do what they do well. Yes. And that, and that, and that's really frustrating. And now like specifically, and I, I don't really need to get into it, but like specifically the people, the, the, the hedge fund, the vulture fund that, owns the Denver post. Yeah. They're, they're, they are evil people. They're very bad people. They like beyond being sort of stupid, <laughs> which they are like, they like they have th- this, this hedge fund, they're called Alden global capital. 
like they're they don't do things very intelligently. Like they've made very bad they've made very bad investments in other industries and they sort of fell into the newspaper business and they're doing very stupid things with newspapers now also. Um but if they wanted to make money and they are making money, that's, that's the other thing. But if they wanted to have a successful business, they could just, they could, they could literally just tell the newsroom, okay, just do what you do. And they would reap profits. Like yeah. they would roll in cash, but that's not their business model. They, their business model is to tear everything down. So, um, and, and they do it in a very evil way. It's very, it's very crass and cynical and, I mean, they're, they're bad people. They're just like bad people in their, in their souls. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like I get, like I get frustrated sometimes when, and I kind of have to bite my tongue sometimes. And this is the last thing I'll say. Yeah. Cause readers, readers have a, have the wrong impression sometimes about newspapers that they, they, they're struggling and they're, they're old fashioned or they're stuck in the mud or something. They're not like mm-hmm. newspapers know exactly what they're really good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and the, like they, they, they roll with things like no other place that I know. Oh, yes. Like they, they, now, and, but newspaper people tend to talk about themselves. So people <laughs> can, and they, and they're, and you know, they're kind of in a cynical way. So people kind of get an impression that like everything, like the sky is falling on newspapers. It's really not like the, they're doing really good job. The people at the general post are making a lot of money. It's just being stolen by their own owners it's like so there's there's like two sides to one coin if that makes any sense and one side is evil and dumb (laughs) and the other and the other side carries on like on a daily basis in the face of the like you know i don't know the the you know having to cover the aurora theater shootings yeah and like deadly wire like bat like just stuff like that just happens as a common occurrence and the people who work there just carry on on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's completely amazing. And, and they, they just keep going and it's awesome. And then the, the, and those are those people. The last thing they deserve is to have their own team, their own owners just under, just cut them off at the knees. It's just like, it's just. It's frustrating, mm-hmm. but, but the, but like if, if there's one thing that I try to, to tell people, especially readers, um, the, the, the news that you see comes from people who very much care, they yeah. care very deeply and they're very good at their jobs. So if you see something that you don't like, if you, if you, if you didn't get your paper delivered on time or, um, you know, you're, you, you don't like the coupons that you got, that's probably that that is probably a product of the 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 jerks who own the place not the not the cool people who run the place <laughs> if that makes sense it does and i obviously understand why your characterization is quite harsh toward them because people that you know lost their jobs and this thing about being undercut i mean these are your friends your how yourself i mean the way it went for you was not the way that you hoped so i get it I guess it brings up a broader question of what the hell is journalism and what the hell are newspapers? Because, you know, you could argue that we're in America and we're in a capitalist society. They're for-profit businesses. They don't have, uh, you know, 501c status. Denver Post, LA Times, you name it. Everybody's for-profit. And if you want to come in as a hedge fund and strip it down to the bone and make a high-profit margin with 
relatively low revenue and just run, you know, have 20 people in the newsroom instead of 150, you're still making a profit, man. Are, does society, is society owed newspapers and journalism? Do we have to push for it? Do we have to hope that Jeff Bezos clones himself so that every paper is owned by somebody who cares about journalism? Although I'm not so sure that the Jeff Bezos thing is going to end well too. I don't really know yet. I like the post, but we'll see. Like what, what, what is it that constitutes good or evil? And is there a duty within a, uh, you know, a democratic society to have robust newspapers or is that just being pie in the sky because I'm a journalist who went to journalism school and worked for newspapers myself? And in reality, these are businesses that in some cases fail and maybe they should just fail. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. And <clears throat> I don't, but like not even abstractly, not in, in, in any abstract way, but just in a direct way, I mean, an independent monitor in this country <laughs> is more necessary than ever. Um, now, it's, ha- like, it's having a big impact, by the way. The press is definitely uh, their monitoring has paid off in spades on this uh, particular uh, situation. Because who else is doing it? Like, are we? Yeah, so but, I, but I mean, I'm going to be super cynical right now. Like, I it's very important. There's lots of great. Oh, heck, I've had David Fahrenholt on my podcast. Just the stuff that he did on the person that you're referring to, just on the charities that that person was fronting, which had nothing to do with anything. It's great, but I am so cynical right now. Like. The thing that he said about, you know, going on Fifth Avenue and shooting somebody, I really believe that there's nothing that's going to be, I just, I think that it's beyond the pale at this point. So even though journalists serve an essential purpose, and we, like this, this expose in the Times that just came out about, uh, you know, his dad, and he actually gave him $440 million instead of a million. Gotcha! Now what happens? So what? So he's a charlatan? As if we didn't know that. Like it's just, it's, I, I am such a died in the wool journalist. I wanted to be a journalist when I was 12. I went to journalism school. I had a full-time job while I was while I was a full-time journalism school student. I have never done anything else for a living. I never will do anything else for a living. And right now, in the state of the world, I'm like, we're tilting at windmills, man. We're doing all this quality. Well, not me, because I write about baseball. People are doing all this quality work, and it doesn't mean, make a lick of difference. I'm, I'm very, very disheartened right now, I have to tell you. Yeah, well, no, well, I mean, I, I guess I sort of hear what you're saying, yeah. except... I mean, the, the absence of that, we, we, we would almost certainly be worse off. If, if, if the, if the outcome, if, if the outcome of report, of reporting, important reporting is not changed, then that's a, that's not a problem. That's not a journalism problem. The, the journalism is not, you know, attempting to necessarily affect change. No. It's, it's to inform. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, like the change comes after the information. I, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, and you, you kind of like, uh, st- you know, you sort of punch me in the gut. Like, ha- the, Sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the, um, but because you were right, like, how, you know, what is the value of that thing? Like, what is the, the specific, I mean, in a very, in a very direct way, like, what is the val, what is it, what are the value of words? Like, you yeah. can't put, you can't put a very direct value on that. Oh, right. It's- I was saying it in a fatalist way that I'm going to be unemployed and this is all a sham and why are they paying me and whatever. I get but, like that sometimes, <laughs> but it's know, true. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm not making steel. Like, it's just words. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's just, it's just, uh, like information just floating. Like yeah. you can, there's nothing you, you can't like, you can't put a price tag on that because it's, there's nothing to stick the tag to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like, but there, uh, the, I, it's, you know, it's more, 
if, if the, if the sort of, um, you know, if the infor- the flow of information from one place to the other, if it's, if it's less direct than it used to be in the old days, whatever the old days were, that doesn't make it less, it doesn't make it less important or, or less vital. Um, I mean, I, I think, I think if you, if you, if we, if we had to, if we had to try to determine the value of journalism, especially in America, I mean, the best, the best method for that would be to go other places where yes, there are, there is right. not a vital, right. there's not a vital, um, journalistic, you know, history or, or, or effort. And where, where are those places? What, what kind of, what kind of place is, are those places to live? Probably less, less free. I've been Probably. reading a lot about Myanmar lately, like more Myanmar in the last month than I've read in my whole life. And like, holy shit, like, wow. I mean, journalists going to jail for reporting on just whatever it is the government is doing. Like, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And people are being slaughtered and they're reporting on it. And that's, you know, and, and Russia, obviously people get knocked, the journalists get knocked off. It's just like, it's, it's serious stuff. So, I mean, obviously I was playing devil's advocate a little bit by going out there, but it, it's, it's still disheartening what's going on, but yeah, of course it beats the alternative, you know, which is to have a free press. And I guess that sort of wraps it back to the question slash point of if you've got a head of state here or elsewhere who's saying, Hey, the media is the enemy of the state and you need to rise up and don't trust anybody. And you sow the seeds of discord. What the heck do we do? What do we do as society members? And what do we do as journalists to try to push back and say, no, no, you need us. Well, um, not everything happens so immediately. I know we want things to like, for instance, the, the tax fraud story that you, that you mentioned yeah. that came out, it came out from the times, like ridiculous amount of work that went into that story. Oh I haven't gosh. even finished, I haven't even finished it yet. I started 15,000 words, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's worth it. I mean, oh, I, I, but I'm going to, I will finish it, but like, yeah, no, you're right. Nothing's going to happen from that tomorrow, probably not next month or next year. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that the, you know, that the, the arc of, the arc of, <laughs> of, yeah. of history is not going to bend toward justice. Like it, if it takes longer, if, if it takes longer to, to even out or, or to affect a, ch- a positive change from that, then it's not, it's not a journal. That's not a journalism problem. That's a problem with us. Like yes. what, you know, why are we not turning, you know, why, why do we read about, why do we read about corruption or, you know, any, any, anything that journalism is good at, at exposing and why do we carry on with those things? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a problem <laughs> with us. That's not a, that's not a journalism. Problem. Why are we not, why are we not using that information in a positive way? Journalists should have done a better job of reporting on the housing crisis and there would have been less resentment later on because it would have been understood what's going on, but nobody got nailed for that. Spencer, that's another thing that I've read. We're getting way off topic, but that's another thing that I've read so many pieces on. It's like, who are these people who are angry? And maybe they're angry for reasons that are not so pure, but the bottom line is if your wages are stagnant for 40 years and your dad and your granddad could get a good union job and you can't, even though you voted against unions, it just, it puts you in a bad spot and you could say, well, you know, society as a whole is this and this is the unemployment rate is at 4.7% and whoop de do. But like rank and file people are going to be like, this sucks, man. And, and you're, you're going to get things that are, uh, where things are going to turn. And, and I really, this one particular housing crisis piece that I read, I'm trying to remember if it was the economist or whatever, 
but it like explained everything. And it was from a European perspective, but just people got angry, you know, and, and, and we need to have journalists who explain really complicated stuff in a way that will give us the information that we need and hopefully be popular too. Like Michael Lewis, you know, he tells a lot of anecdotes and stuff like that, but he serves a purpose. You know, he obviously sells a lot of books. He makes a lot of money, but like he's telling these stories that are so complex. And now we get it. We're like, Oh, this is why we got fucked. I get it. I understand what happened. And we need more of that. Like when the housing crisis came down, it was, eh, it's too big to fail and blah, blah, blah. Nothing happened. CEOs got richer. The banks are bigger. Now we definitely, they're all too big to fail. And every mortgage went underwater and nobody's wages went up and all the CEOs had an even bigger, bigger gap. Income inequality is higher than it's ever been. And it's like, where were people on the front lines performing the journalistic tasks that they needed to at that time? There were a few, but maybe not enough. And, and so I, you know, where are the resources going to go in journalism 3.0 or 4.0 or whatever? Is it going to be Kardashian watching? Is it going to be frivolous stuff? Are we going to just like have investigative teams up the yin yang because Jeff Bezos and another Jeff Bezos and another Jeff Bezos is going to keep funding stuff like the story in the times, uh, things like that. Like that, that also is a concern of mine. Like what sells in journalism? Can we find enough of an appetite from readers to want to read complex things that very much affect their lives so that they can understand? Maybe they'll still vote the way they vote. I'm not saying I'm right, you're wrong, whatever, but I'm saying at least they can be armed with the facts when they go to the ballot box. Yeah, I don't know. Social capital is still pretty valuable. You know, the, the, that's, you know, it's kind of how, it's kind of how news worked for the longest time. Like you would, you would subscribe to a newspaper, or watch a newscast, whatever. To gain social capital and whatnot. So, I mean, there's, I, I don't think that's any different than it used to be. Hmm. There's certain, but I don't know, if you're pointing out problems with journalism, I mean, there's plenty. I mean, yeah. there, it's not, it's, yeah. I'm like, mostly yeah, rambling because it's 5.17 a.m., but anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, I mean, there are definitely, there, I mean, there are failures all the time in journalism, but that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that it, it's a, you know, a reason to scrap the whole idea. No. Um, but, you know, I, it, I, it seems to me that people want want information enough to pay for it, yeah, um, to a certain degree. Um, and like, well, I don't know, there, you know, in my entire life, as far as back as I can remember, we I've heard heard people, you know, bitch about why why news is shallow and you know celeb assessed or whatever obsessed or whatever uh, that doesn't seem any different in fact i think it seems almost better now because you can just you know if you want to read a bunch of dumb crap you can just download snapchat but you can go on like let's say long reads or whatever and curate what you want the stuff that you want to read too. <laughs> yeah. right right or exactly. whatever it's website pick your favorite yeah yeah um but you know the fact that you know i the the fact that subscriptions are up at, at certain newspapers or news sites, um, traditional and otherwise, I, I mean, I, I, it speaks to, it speaks to a desire for people to want information, solid, very, you know, credible information. Um, I, I, I mean, I know that I'm a news hound sort of yes. just by nature, but, but per, like personally speaking, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't even think twice about, about paying eight dollars a month or ten dollars a month to read the washington post like that's a no-brainer yeah um i think there are i i'm i know i'm not alone there are a lot of people like that yeah no in fact subscriptions went through there i mean it really really took off over the last year or two you saw it all over the place so that was a good sign 
Uh, one last question I want to ask you, and I'll, you, I'm going to try to ask it, and hopefully you'll answer it in a way that nobody's getting in trouble or whatever, but I want to ask you about The Athletic. It's a cool experiment. Uh, I think it's beyond an experiment at this point. We're on to a successful business model. But it's interesting, you know, and the idea – I mean, I was writing for The Athletic on the Toronto website, and at the time I was talking to a guy named James Myrtle who's like runs that bureau or whatever and a great hockey writer – and he laid out the company vision a little bit at the time. And he was saying, you know, like, we'll pick off a couple, you know, things here and there. And, like, we think we can make inroads in hockey. Hockey's not being covered properly. But then all of a sudden, a lot of national writers, like, of great esteem in various sports were just like, I want to work for you guys. And they're like, okay, we'll take you. And it became, oh, yeah, it's also the home to Kenny Rosenthal and Stuart Mandel and all these people. And then it became, well, why don't we just fill every market? And then it became, why don't we fill every market with every sport? And then it became... We're just going to beat the sports section in every city. It's really interesting. And so I'm curious to hear about how you're liking your day-to-day there. And the other thing I want to ask you is if it's going to be – if you think this could be a sustainable model for news, like if you think that there could be an athletic that's only focused on local news that could beat the pants off of, let's say, the Denver Post. Uh, well, I mean, there are those things already. Yeah. There, there are, they exist in Denver even alone. Um, like sort of – they're like – uh, you know, Denver specific, uh, kind of athletic models for news, sort of. Yeah, but how successful are they? Like, I'm like 5280, you mean something like that, or? There's Denverites, and there's, yeah. uh, the Colorado Sun is new. I don't know, I, I mean, I give, I. It's I good stuff, but like, are, are they yeah. making inroads? But go ahead. Um, but, you know, the, so, uh, the, I, I'm trying not to think too much about, about the industry of the athletic, the business of the athletic, right. um, only because I don't know. Well, man. it's VC. Working at a newspaper, like kind of, <laughs> like yeah. I ha- like it's kind of tight. It's kind of you can get caught up in it with things that are out of your control, yes. and I, like it's not healthy. Um, but like, here are my impressions, and I don't mind. I don't mind telling you, Jonah. Yeah. Um, like this is a public podcast. You're aware, yeah. Yeah, I'm kidding, yeah, no, I'm but I'll, but yeah, but I'll, yeah. but I don't mind, I don't mind telling yeah. the, um, you know, a couple of things that I, and I, I, I really, I really can separate myself into being a reader, so I can, I can speak as a reader more yeah. than just like a, yeah. a writer. There's lots of good um, stuff to read. The, the thing that I like about the athletic as a reader, um, and this was to me a smart bu- business move is, uh, uh, but I have not studied this, so I, I I'm saying this in a pretty shallow way, but like you mentioned, they were like, yeah, man, let's cover hockey. Like you're, we're not, nobody's getting a lot of hockey coverage, mm-hmm. certainly not in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so they went to an underserved sport and they were like, yeah, let's kick ass at hockey. And it worked. And then to me, in a weird, this is, was sort of fascinating to me. They discovered that in a weird way, baseball was kind of underserved. Baseball oh, yeah. reporting was kind of underserved, like only because, or in a large part, because you know, news and, and, and uh, sports journalism was so NFL obsessed, mm-hmm. um, that it became saturated. So they were like, well, let's swirl over here and do baseball. And people were like, well, hell yeah. Let, like, give me, give me more baseball. Pump that into my veins. <laughs> um, which is, which is very cool. Now, now, like, like you mentioned, basically every sport in every city is covered with the athletic now, but the, you know, as a baseball reader, as a fan, I liked that they definitely were um, committed to baseball reporting, which is very cool. Now, like, so did you, like, did you, you noticed the letter that sort of leaked out out of Cleveland? What was that last week or two weeks that, that was kind of ragging on the athletic 
Um, the I editor don't think the, I saw that. To be fair, my wife is almost eight months pregnant, so that might be part of it. But no, that's so anyway, the, I, I'm not I'm not going to wade into it too much. But the 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 NBA writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer went to the Athletic, and um, the editor of the paper there was not pleased, and he wrote a letter to his staff. And here here's the here's the thing about about like that I would like to say to him yeah and i don't know the situation in cleveland in any way whatsoever so I, this is this is probably ignorant of me to be talking like this but i would like to tell him like from a from a union type perspective like an yes, actual yes. workplace type perspective um the athletic is a really nice place to work mm. i have not been there for i've been there for what six months seven yeah. months but the people are very friendly Everybody is very professional and very good at their jobs. Very. <laughs> like, like, how could you, I don't, I don't understand how you could begrudge somebody for like making a life decision that's like, wh- why, I don't know why you, you would rag on your guy f- for leaving for a, for a nice opportunity. That doesn't seem very, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem very. Well, it's like when people rag on their favorite baseball player because they went from the Twins to the Cubs. It's like, yeah, they offered me more money. Like, journalists sometimes seem to be, I, maybe within the journalism industry, feels like they're some of the same double standards as athletes. Like, you have to stay here. This other place is paying me 15K more with better benefits, and I'd rather work for this guy than this guy. Like, what's the problem? I don't understand. It should be easy. Yeah, and I, it's, I, I don't know. For me, it's not really, a, I mean, it's not really a, a money thing. Right, it's just right. like a nice yeah, place. Whatever like I, it is. Like yeah. the, like the people I work with and I mean, in a large way, it's other baseball writers. It's just like a daily, it's like a lot of fun on a daily basis. Um, and it's like, it's, it's fun and entertaining and it's invigorating. They're like, like I, I, it's just a, it's like really, it's a really nice place to work. I really enjoy it. So, and I don't know why that can't be the case in other places. Uh, I don't know why that can't be the place of the newspaper, um, for instance. And there are probably some out there that are. I don't, uh, you know, I mean, the, the Denver Post was awesome at times, but, yeah. um, but it also was full of despair and dread because of, because of the ownership. But like, that shouldn't be, like, you, you should not be, you should not, nobody, nobody in this country should work any job that fills them with dread and despair on a daily basis. That's not right. Um, so, yeah, the, the, my experience with the athletics so far is le- that everybody is very good at their jobs. Everybody's very professional and hardworking and just friendly and nice. Like, I don't, uh, it's just, it's just like a, pl- it's a, a, it's a real pleasure. And I hope that comes, I hope that comes through for subscribers too. I hope they notice that. And I think it, I think it does. It's like, just, I think the stories that I read from other people, um, and, and like, I'll admit that like I mostly read baseball stuff because yeah. that's, that's my job. Like, it's a real, I really, like, I, I would read as a reader, I would be subscribing to the athletic. It's fun. Like, like, I, I, I don't know why I've been thinking about this late, lately, but like, for instance, Rustin Dodd in Kansas City. Very good. Like swerved off at one point and wrote about a beer league softball. We're wrote about beer league softball because it, I won't give the story away. It's worth it's worth yes, finding. It had it. It, ha, it had relevance to the Royals, mm-hmm. but like you can't write that story. You can't write that story f- 
Oh, you got to do game notes and you got to do this and you're on deadline, you're dead tired and then you got to write your one feature a week and then you got to travel to Minnesota. And it's, you, you have like, and there are certain obligations to work, to work in a newspaper. Yeah. You have to, you're, you have to get the facts out. You, it's a, those are papers of record. Yes. I, I, I still think that's the case, but at, at the athletic, you can swerve and do stuff that's, that's fun and. Yep. And like, and hopefully important, you know, the, in a in a more freeing way um, than I have than I have seen previously. Yeah, I'll make one last point on that front, and then we'll, maybe we'll both call it a night. But uh, it's, I think institutional culture matters in any business, in every business, and I think it really matters a lot. I only have one industry to cite because it's the only one I've been in. But it matters a lot in journalism. And you're talking about fun places to work. I've been so blessed. Like, I, I CBS is great. I really like Sportsnet. I was with SI for a time. I used to write for the, the stock marketplace called Investors Business Daily, which was totally different. And almost everybody there had different political views than I did, but I liked working there too. That was a cool place in some ways. And, uh, but sometimes you can get flack for stuff and the athletic has gotten flack. And there have been various reasons, whatever, which are not worth going into at any length. But like, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of Grantland. The Grantland was a great place to work for those of us who were inside, and we all really liked it. And some people were pretty damn bitter about it for whatever reason. I don't know because because not too many people were being peeled off from newspapers because it was a young staff. But whatever the reason du jour was, that the Grantland was too cool for school, or that certain people chased people or whatever. But from the inside, I was like, this is a great place. And I think that people just do better work when you're happy to come to work, when you're intellectually challenged because you have other people who are really good there, which is hard enough to be. You have to hire good people. And from having kind of a no jerks attitude where you're just like, all right, you know, don't snipe at me. I won't snipe at you and let's just do our thing. And you are proud to be there. I was really proud to work with Zach Lowe because, geez, Louise, he's like the, probably the best sports journalist in North America. He's unbelievable. And like the energy on Molly Lambert was really – all these people were really good – and so it elevates you. Your status is elevated because you're like, oh shit, I'm their colleague. Like I'm, much, I'm not as good as they are, but there's a halo effect. And I think the athletic has that. Like if I was working with Kenny Rosenthal and Jason Stark, I'd be like, hell yeah, I work with Kenny Rosenthal and Jason Stark. Like that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, like for for example, uh, Ken Rosenthal wrote this story about Pat Vileka earlier this season. Yeah, which was amazing. It blew my mind. My first reaction. Was that son of a bitch beat me to the story? <laughs> I had no idea. And then, but my second reaction was, uh, after I read the story, I was like, holy shit, that's a great story. Yeah. Like it was like a real pleasure to that, like, you know, that I, that I was in just by, just by masthead or whatever you would, you would say, like I was connected to the story. I did nothing for it. Yeah. Like he wrote the yeah, entire story. Masthead. Um, but I was like, man, I work, I work with that guy. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not just, I'm, I'm really not just saying that. I was like, hell yeah. But you know, like you've written books, which are rewarding in another way, but it's very, I'm sure it's very solitary. I've never extremely. Yeah. But is it like in a, in a different kind of way? It's so, it, it can be so rewarding to work with a team that you just like enjoy yes. working with. It's like, it just, it's just like a jazz, it jazzes you in a whole different way. I think that's uh, totally right, and I think that 5.30 a.m. is a good time to call it for a podcast. Uh, Nick Groke, we'll read you at The Athletic. We'll follow you on Twitter, at Nick Groke. And uh, I always am looking for an excuse to talk to you, buddy, so this was a good one. 
And uh, here's to a fun Rocktober. Let's hope they keep it going. You know what I thought we were going to talk about? I thought we were going to talk about tequila and duck wings. <laughs> Which is literally how we used to dinner. <laughs> when we lived in Denver, four of us used to go out for dinner every month, and we would just try to find ridiculous cocktails and eat duck wings all the time. And I've left Denver. I now live back in Montreal, and I miss tequila and duck wings with uh, with Nick and our friends Michael and Nate, uh, and our friend Ben, who moved to another city. So I don't know. We all need to converge when we're late, when we're older, and just live somewhere geographically. Whatever the middle is, I don't know if it's like Ann Arbor. We're all going to live in Ann Arbor when we're 16. We'll go up to Anderson. I'm in. Let's there do you it. Go. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Jonah.